Good morning. I don't know what Pastor Chris was talking about. I think there is absolute truth in this world, and yeehaw is the right thing to say at Stampede. Can I get a yeehaw? I mean, I didn't even hear about this Yahoo nonsense, and then I was driving up north on McLeod Trail, and I saw this big Yahoo sign. Like, which Yahoo put that up? It's, it's, it's Yeehaw. I, uh, I've never heard until this year this Yahoo. Does anybody, like, actually believe this Yahoo stuff? Okay, there's a, there's a few of you, but you're in the minority. Come over to the, come over to the right side. We'll, uh, we'll help you see the light. Um, just a reminder, sorry, if you're in junior high, uh, there is no uh, junior high conversations now for the remainder of the, the summer, and so we encourage our grade six to eight students uh, to uh, stay in the service with us. We are starting a new series this morning uh, that's going to go for a few weeks here called Songs of the Summer. How many of you guys have a summer playlist that, you, uh, that you've pulled out already? How many of you guys know what a playlist is? Anybody? Okay, so if you go on like something like Spotify, they have pre-made playlists where you can press play on them, and they'll just play you great kind of summer uh, chill songs. Uh, I have summer kind of go-to albums, summer playlists that I like to play, and music has the power, I think we know, to change our mood, right? And so when you, when you put on a sad song, what do you end up feeling? Sad. When you put on a happy song, you end up feeling happy, and... In summer, you know, you want to feel light and happy, and you kind of create a playlist around that. Uh, music also has the ability to sympathize with your mood. How many of you guys have ever put a song on to kind of match how you're feeling? Does that happen? Right? So, you know, if I'm feeling sad, often I don't put on, even though if I did put on happy music, it would probably take me out of that mood, but sometimes I, I need to sit and sit in my feelings a little bit and what's going on, and so I put on music that reflects how I'm feeling. And the opposite is also true. Now, before they were playlists, there was, uh, you had maybe summer CDs. Okay, now I'm speaking somebody's language. How many of you guys have your summer CDs that you've broken out? Cassettes? All right, eight, eight tracks? Hey, put up your hand. How, how many of you guys remember the days where you're listening to, I'm not putting my hand up, I don't even know what they were, but apparently, eight tracks? Yeah, there's, okay. So, those were back in the days of rotary phones, like where you had to dial and, have you, have you guys seen that video where they give rotary phones to young people to see if they can figure out how to, and they give them five minutes to dial somebody's number and many of them can't make it? They don't know what to do. Anyways, before we had MP3 players and CDs and cassettes and A-tracks and all of that stuff, uh, we had the Psalms. The Psalms provided that space uh, throughout Jewish history, throughout Christian history of the place that followers of Jesus, people that wanted to follow God, would go to. And they would go to them, much like we go to our playlist, they would go to them to, um, to reflect the mood that they felt. No matter what emotion you're feeling, I I guarantee you, you could probably find it in the Psalms. Or sometimes they would go to it to change how they're feeling. They needed a a better perspective. There there was stuff happening in their lives, in our lives, and so when we go to the Psalms, it it causes us to take our eyes off of what's immediately right in front of us and to look at God and to get a renewed perspective, a heavenly perspective on what's going on in our lives. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to just pick a few Psalms. 
called Songs of the Summer, not taken from a modern playlist, but an ancient playlist. And this morning we're looking at Psalm 27. We will be looking at Psalm 27. There we go. This is what it says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. The one thing I asked of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me where, when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy singing and praising the Lord with music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Teach me along, lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath they threaten me with violence, yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Now, when you think of the context of the psalm, and many of the psalms, uh, and the psalms we'll look at this summer, uh, written by David, who probably many of us are familiar with, and his life kind of uh, acts as a backdrop for us to understand maybe emotionally what he's going through in these psalms. And there's no guarantees that we know exactly which point he's talking about in his life when he wrote this particular psalm, when he wrote the song. You know, but he, he was writing this to reflect how he was feeling, obviously, but maybe even writing it to take him out of the pit of what he was feeling and focus on God. My guess is there's probably two instances where this psalm could have come out of. When he was running from his enemies, if you remember the story where King Saul was uh, chasing him because he had become a threat to, uh, well, King Saul was insecure, right? And uh, the fame of David was... Uh, was rising, particularly after he defeated Goliath and the moments that happened after that. And David is fleeing from this insecure leader in Saul, and he's hiding in caves. And he talks about running for his life. There's another moment that's similar to that later on in David's life when he's retreating again as his son Absalom is trying to take the kingdom from David, and David retreats again. So there's these two moments in David's life that I think we could apply the psalm to where he has enemies, where uh, his name is being kind of taken through the mud, where there's opinions, where there's gossip happening in town around him, where he's afraid of his life because there's armies or people that are searching for him, trying to take him down. 
And so we have the psalm that where he focuses on God, where he's looking for courage, where he's looking for bravery. And we see here, be brave and courageous. This is the line in the middle of, of these last three lines where the psalm ends. And I don't know what you think of when you think of bravery and courage, but my mind immediately went to a Mel Gibson and Braveheart. When I think of bravery and courage, th- this, is th- this is the image I get in my mind. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Right? Against that? No! We will run! And we will live! Alright? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! That's awesome, right? Alba Gubra. Alba Gubra. I, I, I went and checked out, I, I went to the translation of what is, what are they yelling out there? Alga Gubra. And you know what I found out? It means yeehaw. Yeehaw, yeehaw. Thousands of years, we cannot turn the tide now. It actually means Scotland forever, apparently, but uh, all the same. So th- this is what I think of when I think of bravery. I-, I-, I think of stories like this, images like this, bravery and courage, and often associated with action, with fighting, with moving from our scared, passive position into one of activity and force. We We associate these types of ideas with, with the idea of faith as well. Have faith, have courage, be brave, go on the offense. And yet, when I read this passage, I was journaling on this passage earlier this year, and I just, I just couldn't get past these three lines. Wait patiently for the Lord, be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. I was like, that seems like a contradiction, does it not? Like, William Wallace wouldn't wait patiently. This is, this, there's an irony here at the end of the psalm that has caused me to ponder. And I, I want to talk a little bit, just really quickly, about the tension between these two things. And the, uh, the, the nerdy aspect of this, the, this is what they call in Hebrew poetry or, you know, in, when people would write music or write poetry in the Hebrew world, it was called a chiasm. 
Uh, you know, so in our, in our context, we would write like exclamation marks or capitalized letters. You know, when, you're, uh, when, when your wife texts you in all capitalizations, she's trying to communicate something with some force, right? So that, instead of them doing that, what they would do is they, they would create these chiastic structures in their writing. And the focus is on the middle. Be brave and courageous, but the, the, uh, they sandwich it with some context. What does that mean? So be brave and courageous. There's the commandment. And warriors like William Wallace encourage us to eat our sandwiches with just the meat. Throw out the bread. Throw out the toppings. And maybe that's how we often read courageous and brave and we think about these things. But what does it mean in the context of this sandwich to eat the whole thing? What does it mean to be brave and courageous and also to wait patiently? Are those things at odds? We don't do a great job of waiting patiently in our culture. There was a study done by Stanford University to test the ability of children to delay gratification. Actually, Trent talked about this in the men's weekend last, last weekend. It was called the marshmallow test. And so what they would do is they, they would bring children into a room and they would put a marshmallow on the table and they would give them a time limit and say, if you can wait to eat that marshmallow this amount of time, whatever, it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, then we will give you two marshmallows. And then they would just observe these children and whether or not they would uh, wait to eat those marshmallows. This, this test has been kind of redone multiple times. I, I found, uh, let me show you one more video. I found one more, I found a video of where this was attempted. So they put kids in a room, one marshmallow, wait five minutes, and if you don't eat it, I'll give you two. What happened in their human nature? Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. So I'm going to leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? 
Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> Waiting patiently. We do not know how to do that well. We live in a culture of the immediate, of the now, of instant gratification. In fact, if, if you start to pay attention to the messaging in the world around us, it's that you can have X now. You, you don't have to wait. You know, think of even the fast food movement. You can have this meal right now, as soon as you want it. And the movement of Netflix, whatever movie, whatever TV show you want, you could have it now. You don't even have to pay for it. Do you remember the days where you had to go to the store to rent a videotape? Do any of you guys remember that? Yes, you're, okay, so it's not that, that long ago. Okay, you used to have to go to a store to rent a movie, and then you bring it back to your house and you have to return it by the right time the next day. But now you don't have to wait. You just get a Netflix account, watch a show whenever you want it. You think of, you know, iPhones, checking something, you know, the, the phrase, I'll just Google it. You know, you used to actually have to go to the library, look up in an encyclopedia to find out information. Now you just say, I'm going to Google it. Googling, it has, Googling has become a verb. You think of purchasing. You know, you don't even have to really save that much money anymore. You just have to get a, enough for the bank to give you the thumbs up. And you can have a house or a place like you want, when you want it. Same with a car. What about how our culture talks about sex? You don't have to wait for it. You can have it when you want it. Have it now. Instant gratification is the world that we live in. When there's a marshmallow in front of us, we, we have almost lost the ability as a culture to not grab it if we can. We're short-sighted. I remember uh, years ago uh, when my oldest son Joel was uh, quite young, you know, we were at South Center Mall, and uh, going to the mall with the toddler is an interesting experience uh, because they see things and they want them now. They don't understand this idea of delayed gratification or that you can't have everything you see. Uh, and so I remember we were walking towards the bay, and this is when the Disney store used to be by the bay, right? And so we're walking. I, I, I can see the Disney store coming up. And I'm scratching my head. I know what's going to happen when he sees that Disney store. It's going to be like Cars mania. Like he's going to lose his mind. And, uh, and, and so I, I came up with this genius idea. I said, Joel, let's have a race. See, see the store at the end of the hallway? I was like, let's race. See if you can get to the end of the hallway first. Like, oh, that's a great idea. So I'm running, and he's running behind me. And we made it to the bay. He didn't even notice the Disney store. It was awesome. So coming on the way out, coming out of the store, I thought the same thing would work. Um, and I said, hey, Joel, let's run all the way down the hallway. Um, maybe I didn't have a finish line. That's why he got bored. Uh, I said, let's, let's race down this hallway and see who gets there first. He's like, great idea. And so I pretend to race. And I'm, I'm like looking back, and I can see his eyes go like this. And I see him stop. And I'm like over here, and I'm like, okay, here he goes. And he, he starts walking towards the store. And I said, no, we're not going in the store. And... Uh, 
and on more than one occasion, I have dragged my toddlers out of a mall uh, on my back, kicking and screaming because they wanted something now. And I said, no. And so, so over time, we just learned to acquiesce, and we, we would go into the mall and say, I'll buy you a Slurpee right on the front end of the mall, or like we buy them a little gift. And then they would wait patiently through the mall period if they knew that they could have this. Or we'd hold on to the, to the end and we'd promise them something. Uh, but that took us some time to develop that strategy. But our kids, they want something immediately. They want it now. There's a book called The, the Patient Ferment. It's a great book. Uh, and the whole idea behind the book, The Patient Ferment, is answering the question, how did the early church in the first two centuries grow so rapidly? How did it multiply so quickly? And the argument in the patient ferment was the virtue of patience is actually what propelled the church into astronomical growth in the first and second century. Patience. This was the main virtue that the church actually upholded. And you can read through the church fathers, and they talked about patience. They talked about patience because in a in the culture of Rome, it was the patience of the church to wait. To wait under suffering. The patience of the church to wait. Instead of grabbing whatever marshmallow that Rome would put in front of them, the patience of the church to say no and to delay gratification, to maybe even put their lives at stake, to wait patiently on the Lord, is what set them apart from culture. And because they did this with such integrity and such consistency, it was so attractive to the world around them that was in this instant gratification culture that people wanted to be a part of it. People recognized that the lives of these Christ followers who were waiting patiently were drastically different. There was joy. There was relationships. There was community. There wasn't a poor person among them because they learned how to wait and they learned how to suffer and they learned how to do that together and not necessarily give in to instant gratification or whatever was easiest at the time. Waiting patiently. So when I think of this phrase, wait patiently and be courageous, we could call it courageous patience. I started to wonder, what does it look like when we kind of do one and not the other. You know, I think some of us are really patient. How many of you guys would say you're patient? Okay. There's some very patient people in this room. But I think when we have patience without courage, cowardice, what, what begins to happen? Some of you are very, very patient. You wait. You endure. You suffer. But you continue to wait, you continue to endure, you continue to suffer, and when God calls you to courageously act and move, you don't. And I think what happens over time that people that are really great at patience but aren't necessarily courageous is they start to suppress what's going on. They experience bitterness, they experience unforgiveness. There's a boiling underneath the surface that happens. There's maybe eventual breakdown, a moment where something snaps. It might be something this small, but it was the camel that broke the, or is the straw that broke the camel's back. But you just patiently endured and endured and endured, but you never courageously dealt with it in the way that God was calling you to. And so there was a bitterness and an unforgiveness that kind of boiled up. I think there's some here in the room this morning that are 
wrestling and working through bitterness that's building up, unforgiveness that builds up. And there's some point in the future, maybe it's already happened and you can reflect on it, where that blew up. Because although you were patient, you didn't actually have the courage to handle what was going on in the way that God called you to do it. Some of us are really courageous and we're impatient. Anybody impatient here? Pretty courageous? What does this person look like? It looks like a lot of activity without a lot of character. It looks like volatility. It looks like anger. You know, they're, they're not afraid to stick it to the man. They're not afraid to think, say what they think. They don't have any ability to keep it in. Maybe it looks like road rage. You know, maybe you end up yelling at the person driving in front of you. And then you hear your kids start yelling at the person driving in front of you and you're wondering where they got that from. You can probably guess which box I sit in when I'm unhealthy. I can relate to this person that I got some courage, but if my courage is combined with impatience, then I end up hurting a whole lot of people. I end up compromising on character. Maybe you have a short fuse with your spouse, your kids, your coworkers. Yeah, you're courageous. You don't hold back. You're always active. But you're burning bridges all the time. I think there's some of us in the room that would probably say we could fit in that box. What about this one? We don't have courage. We don't have patience. What does this one look like? I, I think this one looks like gossip. We're not courageous enough to say what we think in the place that we should say it. Talk about how we feel in the place that it's appropriate. We're not patient enough to hold it in. And so what we do is we start to deal with it someplace else. And so maybe it looks like gossip. Maybe it looks like backstabbing. Maybe it looks like going to different addictions or medications to deal with what's going on in our lives because we don't have the patience to wait. We don't have the courage to do what we should do. I think depending on your personality, we could find ourselves in any one of those three boxes. But I think what the Bible calls us to is this courageous patience. I think the best version of David in his life is when he practiced courageous patience. When we think back to the story of Saul, and David was in a cave, and David was already anointed and told that he was going to be king. And he had the chance to slay Saul and take the throne right then and there. What did he do? He waited. He didn't do it. That took courage. That took courage and it took patience. Which begs the question. When we think about the marshmallow test... You know, the whole 
The whole idea is if you wait for the one marshmallow, you're going to get two. But what happens when we're tempted with two marshmallows and we don't have to wait at all? That's what David was faced with. You can have it all right now, two marshmallows. But he didn't take it. I remember in, when I was in college, you know, I cared about getting good marks, but I cared about getting good marks because I wanted to play basketball. And uh, I think I needed like a 2.2 GPA in order to keep playing. And so that was kind of like, that was kind of the goal. That was the goal I had. If I could just keep a 2.2 GPA, then I could play basketball. And in my first year of college, they had something called reading slips. And, and he had a whole bunch of books that he had to read as a freshman. And all you had to do was sign your name on the reading slip and write that you had re- read the appropriate pages that you were supposed to read. And it was like 50% of your mark in every class. But what did I do? I'd, I'm like, this is free marks. I, like I, I barely made it through high school. And so here I am at a Bible college studying the Bible. But I'm pretty sure it tells me that I shouldn't lie. And I was handing in reading slip after reading slip after reading slip, just cashing in those free marks. You guys are making me nervous. You're supposed to be laughing right now. They're like, help me out. Help me out here. This is a confession moment. And so why did I do that? Why did I lack the endurance, the patience to actually wait, to read, to do what I was supposed to do in order to get the marks that I wanted? Why? Because the goal I had was just to get the two marshmallows. And I was going to get them however I could. Oh, I can sign this paper and get them right now. I'm going to do it. But what if the goal that I should have had was not the marshmallows at all? What if the marshmallows were actually just a test of my character? It all changed for me in the second year of Bible college, I'm thankful to say. So admittedly, the first, the first marks I got in my first semester, they were a complete farce, but I, they're, they're pretty authentic from that point on. Uh, Truthfully, it's, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm qualified to be your pastor from second year on. From second year on. But I'm not qualified because of my marks. I'll, I'll tell you, what, what, what happened in my heart between first and second year was the goal changed. I, I realized it wasn't about getting one marshmallow. It wasn't about getting two marshmallows. It was about what God was doing in my heart in the waiting in the studying, in the reading, in the writing. Sometimes we think that the end is the goal and that the means just that the ends justify the means. But what if the means is actually the same as the end? What if what we do is the point? What if how we handle the waiting is the point? What if God's interest is not the same as yours? What if you're looking at that thing in the future and you're saying, if I could just get that, if I, if I could have that, and, and God put that in front of you, 
But for him, that's actually not the point. The, the, the point is, what are you going to do between here and there? How are you going to handle the waiting? In fact, in Luke 3 and 4, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Jesus was baptized, and after his baptism, it says this. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Try and make sense of that in your brain. Before Jesus kind of went into his public ministry, God's like, I'm going to lead him into the desert where he will be tempted by the devil. When he was in the desert, Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of man, tell these stones to become bread. Temptation number one. Temptation number two. If you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Temptation number three, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Display your power. Show that you are who you said you are. And when Satan tempted him with the kingdoms of this world, Satan could do that because Satan was the ruler of the world. And so here's Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, knowing that the cross was before him, knowing that that was the journey that he would have to take to actually be king of this kingdom. That the power that God wanted him to display was actually going to be shown through the self-sacrificial love on the cross and then eventually his resurrection. And here, Satan is holding these two marshmallows in front of Jesus and saying, you don't have to do that. You can actually take the shortcut and go right now. Take the shortcut. But Jesus knew that the end does not justify the means. Jesus knew that in the waiting, in those 40 days, in his three years of public ministry, in the crucifixion, that God was going to do something powerful through him and in him that he couldn't have done if he would have taken a shortcut. God transformed Jesus in the wilderness. In fact, you can read it in Luke. It says that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness And then after the three temptations, when Jesus waited patiently and courageously, not taking a shortcut, it says that he left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. I wonder if in the North American world that us as Christ followers are so powerless to live in a different way than cultures because we lost the ability to wait courageously on the Lord. That we've so quickly taken shortcuts because we think the ends justify the means. But we've failed to recognize that it's in the waiting, it's in the means, it's in how we handle the waiting that God transforms our character. Do we obey God because we want something from Him, or do we obey God because we love God? Do we do what we do because we want God to do what we want? Or do we do what we do because we just want God? Like sometimes I wonder if our relationship with God is actually just a means to an end. When God is saying, it is the end. How you relate to me, how you live how we be together in the midst of whatever's going on in your life is the end. 
And we just keep looking at the marshmallows, thinking like, that's the point, that's the point when I get there. When I graduate high school, when I graduate college, when I get married, when I have a career, when I have kids, when I have grandkids, when I retire, and we keep chasing these marshmallows and God is looking at us in the waiting and saying, we've missed it. How did you endure the waiting? How do you endure the waiting? Well, I think the psalm actually points us in the exact right direction. It says, the one, this is what David says, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David had the singular focus, and he wasn't perfect, and we know that from, through his story, but he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he desired more than anything else to be with God. The one thing I ask, the one thing I seek is to be in the presence of God. And then in verse 8 it says, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. What do you do in the waiting? Do you seek the presence of God? Do you commune with God? Do you spend time listening for the voice of God, speaking to God? Because it's in that waiting period that we become transformed, that we become people after the heart of God. Many of you know our, uh, our good friend, uh, Jeff Nickel, uh, who passed away last month. I was having a, uh, my last conversation with Jeff, uh, my last extended conversation with Jeff. We were sitting in my office and uh, we, were, we were talking about Jesus and uh, some of these concepts, and, uh, and, I, and I sent out like a teaser on them. And I was like, yeah, it's like the four temptations of Christ. See if he would pick up on it. He's like, okay. And he did, because Jeff knew his Bible. He said, the four temptations of Christ. He's like, I know you're teasing me. He's like, there was only three. He's like, what do you mean the four temptations of Christ? And I said, well, there was four. And the fourth temptation was the most important one. And it's often the one we overlook. And it's subtle. And it's always subtle. But if you notice in the temptations, when, when Satan came to tempt Jesus, he starts off with two-letter word, if. Because if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God. Two of the three temptations Jesus, or Jesus was tempted with that by Satan. And more than anything, what Satan was tempting Jesus of in those wilderness moments was not to sh display his power, not to show off, not to prove something to anybody else, but to prove something to himself, and that was your identity as a son of God. And what he's questioning is what happened in Luke chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized and Jesus comes out of the water and the Father says, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well, and who I am well pleased. This mark of relationship that is the most important relationship that any of us could ever have. And Satan comes and says, prove it. If you're the son of God, if you are in right standing with God. And I think at the end of the day, most of us take shortcuts because we lack security and confidence 
and contentment in just being with God. It's God plus, God and. I love God, and He's the most important thing in my life, but I also need that marshmallow. That's what Jesus was tempted with. That was the fourth temptation. And I think Satan comes to us in the, in the same way, and he highlights for us or he questions our ability to be content with God. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, and I have no need. Can we actually say that, like David in Psalm 23, in a world that tries to convince us that we have a lack. Because I think all of us are waiting on something. But God is inviting us to actually focus on Him and just be with Him in the waiting, no matter what the outcome, because it's in that waiting that we get transformed into Christ-likeness. It's in that courageous patience that we become like Jesus. We take shortcuts when we aren't secure in who we are. We take shortcuts when we have something to prove. We take shortcuts when we don't know where we belong. And we take shortcuts when we confuse the ends with the means. This is, David says in Psalm 27 verse 10 here, he says, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. This was the anchoring reality in David's life. This is the anchoring reality in Jesus' life. Jesus knew who he was as a son of the Father, and because of that, he wasn't tempted to take a shortcut when that was questioned. David was the best version of himself when he operated from the foundation of his relationship with God, and that gave him the fortitude to practice courageous patience. What are you waiting on God for? What are you tempted to take the shortcut with? May you shift your focus from the one marshmallow or two marshmallows and recognize that God is with you, that he created you to be a son and daughter of God, and that because of that, you have everything you need and you don't have a lack. And when you're anchored in that reality, you can actually live in the moment with patient courage, become more like Jesus. The band is going to lead us in a song uh, that, many, that might be new for many of you. And I was thinking about this. We often end the service and it's like, yeah, there's the point. Get up and sing and we move right into action. But sometimes we just fast forward through that waiting and that listening. And I'm going to invite the band to actually just play the song while, while you sit and reflect on that question. Lord, what am I waiting for? Where am I tempted to take shortcuts in my life? Where, where am I taking shortcuts in my life? Where have I bought into the lie that you are not enough? So, Father, as we sit here in these few moments and we reflect, Lord, I pray that you would, through your Spirit, download courageous patience into the areas in our life where we need it. Lord, there's some here that need just more patience. They got lots of courage, but they need more patience. Lord, there's some here that need courage. They're sitting and they're waiting, but they're not moving forward in a courageous way that honors you. 
Lord, I pray for those that don't know where they sit with you, or that lack of security, that lack of contentment. I, I pray for those that feel like they have a lack, that they just need that thing or that thing or that life or that person or that relationship. And Lord, those things are robbing us from being present with you in the moment and being transformed in the midst of our waiting. So Lord, we turn our eyes from those marshmallows, those things that rob us, and we turn our eyes towards you in these moments in our lives. Some of us here this morning that are waiting. Now, some of you are waiting for healing. Some of you are waiting for a better word from the doctor. Some of you are waiting for the reconciliation of a broken relationship. Some of you are waiting for God to finally give you the, the strength to move forward from whatever addictive cycle you're caught in. Some of you are waiting to accomplish that goal that's before you. And this morning, I believe that you're hearing the whisper of the Lord say, I'm in the waiting. I actually want to do something in you and through you in the waiting. And it's not that that point down the road isn't important. But my goal is far bigger than that point down the road. My, my goal is actually to transform you. And it's in the waiting that you're best available for me to do that. And I want to invite you to close your eyes for a second. And, and I think that there's maybe God inviting you to just acknowledge your need for cor courageous patience wherever you're waiting. And if you're maybe someone who's here this morning that says, you know what, I need courageous patience. I am waiting on something and I know what it is and I'm tempted to take shortcuts. I have taken shortcuts and the Lord is telling me to be courageous and patient. I feel like the Lord's inviting you to that. Just, just lift your hand this morning. I'd love to pray for you. He's inviting you to be courageously patient in your waiting. Allow me to pray for you. Actually, allow me to invite you to take another step of vulnerability if you had your hand up. Sorry. Keep your hand up for a second if you're willing. And I would, I would invite you, if you're, to, to open our eyes. And if there's somebody around you that has a hand up, I'm going to invite you just to lay your hands on them as we pray together as we close. So if there's someone that's willing to keep their hand up in the air, they, they need courageous patience in the season that they're in. And there's a hand up around you. Would you lay a hand on them? And let's pray together. I'll invite our, uh, actually, prayer teams. If, if you, uh, there's some people that have hands up that don't have somebody, don't have a, someone praying with them, you can maybe move out and uh, put your hand on somebody. Great. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you, you didn't just tell us, uh, you modeled for us what it means to courageously wait. Lord, as it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Lord, you didn't take shortcuts because you knew that the shortcut would forfeit the very thing that God was wanting to do in you and through you. And so, Lord, I pray against the temptation to take a shortcut for each of these individuals. 
temptation to actually ignore courage and to do something that's cowardly, the temptation to ignore patience and do something that's impatient and uh, is based on emotion but not out of your heavenly perspective. Lord, I pray that you would download for them your heavenly perspective, that you would give them the capacity through your spirit to live in faithfulness in the moment as they're waiting on whatever it is that they're waiting for. As they're waiting for that healing, as they're waiting for that reconciled relationship to happen that they are out of control on. Lord, as they're waiting to accomplish this or that or to to have this happen in their lives, Lord, I pray that you would give them the capacity to honor you in the waiting. Lord, I pray that you would transform their character in these uncomfortable moments so that they might look, sound, and live more like you. Lord, we thank you for your hope. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you go with us. And because of that, Lord, we are more than conquerors. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.